0: Imagine this scenario with me, okay? Imagine there is a young boy, about eight years old, who is home from school, sick in his bed. Can you kind of picture it? He's at home, around eight years old, sick in his bed. His parents have to go out, so the boy's grandfather comes over to take care of the boy. Well, to pass the time, the grandfather brings a book to read to the eight-year-old boy. Now, the boy is somewhat reluctant to have his grandfather read this book to him. So he asks his grandfather, hey, is there any kind of adventure or action in this book you want to read to me? And the grandfather says, oh, yes, there is. The grandfather then goes on to say to this boy that the story he's about to read to him, it has suspense. It has incredible sword fights. It has a giant. It has a man who is mostly dead, but not all dead. (laughs) And the main villain in this story is a man with six fingers. Now tell me, what story would this grandfather be referring to? (laughs) No. If you thought the story he was referring to was the Princess Bride, you would be wrong. No, you know what the story he would be referring to is? Our passage this morning. 2 Samuel 21, verses 15 through 22. Friend, please hear me. The Bible is not boring. Now, there are boring preachers to be Sure. But the Bible is not boring. Rather, it is full of incredible, suspenseful, and intriguing, true biblical accounts. And our text this morning testifies to that reality. You see, like the movie The Princess Bride, in 2 Samuel 21, we read about a giant And not just one, but several. We also read of suspenseful battles. Not only that, we find a man who is so weary, it's as if he is mostly dead. Furthermore, like the princess bride, the main villain in our text this morning has six fingers. Indeed, he not only has six fingers on his right hand, but also his left hand as well. And get this, six toes on both feet. And to top it all off, this 24-digit villain, he's also a giant. Are you intrigued yet? I hope so. Because the author Of 2 Samuel, our passage this morning, he wants us to learn an important truth concerning the ways of our God, as well as what it means to be a faithful follower of God's anointed King. Indeed, according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16, there is an important truth in this passage. That is essential for our training in righteousness. And what is that truth? Well, if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 21. That's page 274 in that paperback Bible. And follow along with me as I read verses 15 through 21. Let me read this. <clears throat> there was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. You could say David grew weary to the point where he was mostly dead. That is, he's exhausted. Now, this this is not to say or to assume that this battle is taking place when David is of old age. As we discussed last week, the events of 2 Samuel 21 do not chronologically follow the events of 2 Samuel 20. Rather, these final several chapters, there are additional accounts in David's life that the author intentionally placed at the end of the book. But for our purposes this morning, the first thing that the author wants us to note is the condition of David. He's weary. Right? This this isn't the full of energy, vibrant David we encountered in 1 Samuel 17. He's weary. Now notice what happens next. Let me read this. Anishbai Benab, one of the descendants of the giant, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze. that would have been about seven pounds, a little more than seven pounds. And that was just the, the tip of the spear, okay, this very heavy spear, shekels of bronze, and who was armed with the new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai. The son of Zeruiah, Zeruah, excuse me, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, "You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel." Now Abishai, he's not new to us, is he? Right? We've we've met this chap. A lot throughout this, our study of First and Second Samuel, as First and Second Samuel have have noted, um, this young man—he's the hot-headed nephew of David, right? And notice he steps in to save David by killing this well-armed giant. And notice how the author makes the point to tell us about this giant's armor and weapons. Yet Abishai. Not David kills the giant. And as we're about to see, Abishai is not the only giant killer in this text. However, what is arguably the most important statement in the entire passage is what David's men say to David at the end of verse 17. What do they tell David to do? Do you see it there? They tell him he ought not go out with them to battle. Why? Remember what he says? Because in layman's terms, David, you're too valuable. Now, now where have we seen this before? Remember what we learned back in 2 Samuel 18 when David and his men were about to go and fight Absalom? Remember this? What did David's men say to David then? They told him what? They said, David, you shall not go out with us. Almost the exact same wording here. For you are worth 10,000 of us. Remember this? They're going to storm, they're going to attack Absalom and his regime. But David's men said, David, you stay here. You're too valuable to, to go out and to die in battle. Well, we see a similar thought in this text, except it's ratcheted up some. Why? Because notice what the, the language the men use. They say to David, you shall no longer go out with this to battle. Why? Lest you quench the lamp of What? Israel, this is no throwaway line. In the Old Testament, the lamp lamp symbolized life and prosperity. And notice, these men apply that understanding to David. David, you are the life and prosperity of Israel. They recognize David's God-anointed status in the kingdom of God. And furthermore, if we, just, if we just keep reading the biblical narrative, we will discover that in the books of 1 and 2 Kings, the Davidic line is referred to as a lamp. This imagery is also picked up in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 132.17 uses the lamp to refer to the final Davidic king, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Did David defeat Goliath? Yes. But as this passage makes clear, please hear me, the preservation of David's life and kingship is due in part to other giant killers who preserved his life. However, this isn't the only giant that threatens God's people. Look at what we read next. Hold on oh, no. oh, one second. There we go. Hopefully, hopefully that's better. All right, reread this in verses 18 and 19. After this, there was again a war with the Philistines. Then Sibachai, the Hushethite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again a war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elihan, the son of Jerem-Oregim, the Bethlehemite struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, wait one moment here. Did we read that correctly? I thought David killed Goliath. What's going on here? This text says that another guy killed a giant named Goliath. Did what we read in 1 Samuel 17, was that, was that a mistake? No, and there are a couple of reasonable explanations here. Who, who is this Goliath? Well, this, this, this chap in this chapter could very well be just another giant named Goliath. This is quite possible, seeing as if there are many duplicate names in the Old Testament, right? Especially in 2 Samuel. Another suggestion is that Goliath was a common noun to describe a giant. Just as Achish may have been a title or a common noun for a Philistine ruler, kind of like Pharaoh is a title of a king of Egypt, not his actual name. However, I think the most reasonable explanation is that the giant referred to in this passage is actually the brother of, of the Goliath that David killed in 1st Samuel 17. Why do I think that's the case? I think this is the case because that's what 1st Chronicles 20 verse 5 indicates, the parallel account to this passage. In that text, we read that Elhan, Elhan struck down Lamai, the brother of Goliath. So I think this is referring to the brother of Goliath. So, Goliath and his brother have had some bad encounters (laughs) with David and his men as both were struck down. But now enter the six-digit giant. Look at verse 21 through 22. And notice how the author ties all this together. Let me read this in verse 20. And there was again war at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six feet Fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. Twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, can we think of other giants who have taunted Israel? Amen. Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four, referring to the giants, were descended from the giants in Gath. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Amen and amen. This is God's word. Apu Sarkar is a 22-year-old man who lives with his family in a village in northern Bangladesh. He, like his father and his grandfather before him, is a far is a farmer. However, unlike other men his age, Apu does not have a driver's license, nor does he have a cell phone. Indeed, he cannot legally obtain either one. And you know why? It's because Apu, as well as the other men in his family, share a very rare genetic mutation. You know what that is? They have no fingerprints. Think about that. He, his father, his grandfather, all the men in his family, they have no fingerprints. This is why he cannot obtain a driver's license or even get a passport for that matter. Also, where he lives, he cannot obtain a cell phone because a finger ID is required for that too. And as I said, it's not just Apu. All the men in his family who live in that one northern village in Bangladesh all share this rare genetic mutation. Well, notice, we see and read about another rare genetic condition coming out of another village, except this village is the village of Gath, don't we? For what does verse 22 say about all the giants listed in this text? They all were descendants from the giants in Gath. And it's important to note that when the Bible speaks of giants, it isn't referring to some fairy tales or myths. Giants exist, right? I mean, just think of one of the actors in The Princess Bride, Andre the Giant. He was seven foot four. You know how much he weighed? 520 pounds. There's no other word to describe that man except giant. <laughs> okay. Or think of Robert Wadlow. He lived in Illinois until he died in 1940. You know how tall he was? Eight foot eleven. Okay. Giants exist. And giants recorded in Scripture are always enemies of God's people. Indeed, one of the significant themes in Scripture is giant killing. For starters, consider how the rebellion that God quelled at the flood was a rebellion of the giants in Genesis 6:4. Or think about what happened to the children of Israel when they sought to conquer Canaan. Who did they encounter when they tried to take the land? Giants. There were giants. A land filled with them as Numbers 1333 states. Other great giants of the Bible were Anak in Joshua 15, Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, and Og in Joshua 12. In our passage, we read of four giants, don't we? And tell me, who is the one defeating these giants? Is it King David? No, the one slaying the giants are his men. I've heard a lot of sermons on David and Goliath. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on these four men defeating four giants. Now, I know it might seem obvious, but I think it needs to be stated, and that is, when it comes to -to hand-to-hand combat, fighting a giant would probably be one of the more difficult opponents you could face, wouldn't you say? I mean, if all things were created equal, right? Fighting a giant would probably be one of the more difficult opponents, especially if this giant is well armored. So here's the question the text begs us to ask, and that is, why would these four men of David risk their lives to go to battle against these giants. I mean, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. Why would they tell King David, hey, Dave, take a seat and we're going to go fight? Why would they tell David to, to set aside and then go fight warriors who are arguably, think about this, two to three feet taller than them, outweigh them by close to 300 pounds, warriors with impressive weapons and one with extra digits, right? Right? The the terse nature in which the author recounts these stories, it begs that question, why would these men fight these huge, intimidating giants? You know what the answer is? I believe it's clearly stated in the text, and that is because God's king is worth it. Faith, as the author of Samuel brings this book in for a landing, I believe he adds this account to remind God's people of this truth, and that is God's king is worth fighting for. More than simply to capture our imaginations, the giant killing stories in this text remind us that God's king is valuable. Indeed, he's so valuable that he's worth risking and losing my life to follow him. You see, faith, the most important thing about this text is not really the giants. No, the most important thing about this text is the preservation of David and David's line, Israel's lamp. You know why? Because it's through David's true son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that our greatest enemy has been defeated, and that's sin and death. Amen? Friend, please hear me. The good news of Scripture is that God keeps His promises. In 2 Samuel 7, God said that all of His saving promises to redeem and to reconcile sinful people to Himself, God said in 2 Samuel 7 that all of His saving promises would come through a son of David. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is precisely what God has done. As the New Testament makes clear, Jesus is the long-awaited Davidic Son, God's true anointed King, who has come to save sinners through his death and resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, accomplished everything necessary for sinful people like you and me to be saved. You see, friend, please hear me. All people, me, yourself included, you need to be saved from God, by God, for God. That is, you need to be saved from God. You need to be saved from God's wrath. Friend, in your sinful state, you are under the wrath of God. Do you know this? You are not a neutral party. You're not innocent. No, because of your sin, you are under the wrath of God. And woe to the person who dies while still in their sin. You know why? Because there awaits for that person an eternity, eternity of God's wrath poured upon them for their sin in hell. Friend, you need to be saved from God. God. And you know what? There is no amount of righteousness or good actions you can do to get you out from under God's just wrath. This is to say, you cannot save yourself. So you know what this means? You not only need to be saved from God, but friend, you need to be saved by God. Scripture says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. To satisfy God's just wrath for our sins, you need, friend, a perfect sacrifice. And hear me, that's precisely what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has made provision for your sin in the Lord Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection on the cross. Christ's atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for your salvation. And I need to ask at this point, friend, have you put your faith in Christ? Let me say it again. Have you put your faith in Christ alone? Have you seen yourself in the condition of your heart before the Lord? Do you see that your sin is so great, there's nothing you can do to eradicate the guilt and the punishment you are owed for your sin? And have you gone all in trusting Jesus Christ, the true Davidic King, God's Son for your salvation? We we said about this morning, right? We read it. There's salvation in no other name. The salvation you need from God's wrath for your sin is found in Christ alone. And I would plead with you, Fred, if you have not, Make today the day of salvation for you. Quit banking on your own morality and your own righteousness and instead own the fact that you are a sinner deserving of God's wrath and trust Jesus in Jesus alone, that he did everything necessary to save you. Because for those of you who are a Christian, you have not only been saved from God, by God, But now you have also, because you've been saved, you've now been saved for God. That is, you are now to live for His glory. This means you now have a new purpose for living, that is to live for Christ rather than yourself. Now, why is this important? Well, there's a legion of reasons why this is important. But one of them being for our purposes this morning is that As followers of God's true King, Jesus Christ, those that are Christians, please hear me, we do not fight to save God's King like David's men. No, we fight because God's King has saved us. You see, Christian, as those who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son, the Bible makes clear, please hear me, we are at war However, our enemies are not giants from Gath. No, as the New Testament makes clear, as Christians, we are are at war against Satan, the flesh, and the world. And although these formidable foes are giants in their own right, Christian, please hear me, be of good cheer. You know why? Because as Paul makes clear in Colossians 2, 14 and 15... Through Christ's death on the cross, he has disarmed our foes and put them to open shame. That is, the giants we now face, they're on a leash. That said, though, they are still giants in their own right, and we are called to fight them. Why are we called to fight Satan, the flesh, and the world? For the same reason because our king is worth it, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is just give us three encouragements from this passage as how we can do spiritual battle, how we can do battle against Satan, the flesh, and the world. Because when we look closely at this passage, I believe it, it wonderfully illustrates three important New Testament truths concerning spiritual warfare. And the first is this. And that's simply, as servants of God's king, expect warfare, right? Look at the first lines of 15, 18, 19, and 20. See there, verse 15, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel, down to verse 18, and there was again a war with the Philistines at Gob, Verse 19, and there was again a war with the Philistines at Gob. Verse 20, and there was again a war at Gath. Do you, do you see the pattern here? <laughs> Friend, please hear me. The Christian life is not a cruise ship, but a battleship. And woe to the Christian who fails to understand this. The New Testament, New Testament repeatedly reminds us of this reality. Think of Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. And we see it illustrated in the verse I just read, do we not? With the constant refrain, and there was war again, and there was war again, and there was war again. So what does this mean? Well, it means several things. It means, Christian, that while Christ has defeated Satan and the forces of darkness on the cross, so that all who are united to him share in that victory. Nevertheless, in this present evil age, Satan and his demons are aggressive in their assault on believers in the church. So practically speaking, this means you should be prepared to fight, not coast. It means you ought to expect temptation. You ought to anticipate struggles. But not only that, it also means you ought to, and this is the second thing we need to do, evaluate your enemy's tactics. And this is the second application I want to draw your attention to. Notice what is said about these giants. Look at the end of verse 16, 19, and 21. At the end of verse 16 there, we notice that this first giant had a spear who weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword. Down there in verse 19, we read of this one, the, the Goliath of Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. I don't know how big that is, but I think it's big. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then 21, this other uh, 24-digit giant who taunts and mocks God's people. At a recent meeting, the new CEO of HBO, John Stanky, he, he challenged his employees with this goal. You know what that was? His goal for HBO and all the employees, he wanted them to do this, and that is, your goal is to capture the viewer's attention. Stanky said this, quote, we need hours a day, end quote, referring to the time viewer's spend watching HBO programs. And then he went on to say this. He said, it's not hours a week. It's not hours a month. He said, we need hours a day. You are competing with devices that sit in people's hands that capture their attention every 15 seconds. He says, I want more hours of engagement. This is their goal. Well, in many ways... That is the same tactic of our foes. Satan, the flesh, and the world are looking for hours of engagement. That is, they are looking to get your focus and attention off the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, and onto something else. And I find it instructive that the author makes space to include the weapons of these giants, as if their size isn't frightening enough. And we should note what the New Testament says about our adversaries as well. And the two tactics that Satan, the flesh, and the world often use in their battle against Christians are pain and pleasure. Earlier this year, during an interview, actor Denzel Washington made this comment. He said, there's a saying "...that when the devil ignores you, then you know you're doing something wrong. When the devil comes at you, you must be doing something right." Have you heard that before? He says, "...when the devil ignores you, then you know you're doing something wrong. When the devil comes at you, you must be doing something right." Have you heard that before? Uh, Interestingly enough, the Bible teaches the exact opposite, Surprisingly, there are relatively few passages in the New Testament that speak of Satan's involvement in the Christian's life. However, one of the clearest passages is James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I have it up here on the screen. Listen to what James says. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. And here's the devil part. <laughs> Resist the devil, and he will keep coming after you. Is that what it says? Resist the devil and he will what flee from you draw near to God and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded notice what this passage teaches according to this verse if we're taking God at his word Satan does not persistently hound and tempt us no as James teaches when you resist the devil he just doesn't turn his back to you. He just doesn't ignore you. What's the verb that James uses? He does what? He flees from you. He runs from you. And the best way to resist the devil is to draw near to God. Because notice what does God do when we draw near to him? What's his action? What's the verb? He draws near to us. Do you, do you see the action here? as we resist the devil by drawing near to God, two things are simultaneously happening. God is drawing near to us and the devil is running away. He's fleeing. So in other words, the best way to resist the devil is to draw near to God. And just by way of application, can I just drill down here for a moment and say, this is why coming to church for corporate worship is so important. This is why daily spending time reading and meditating on God's Word and praying is so important. These are the channels God has ordained for us to draw near to Him. And as we draw near to Him, we're resisting the devil, and the devil is fleeing. So, what does it mean then if I'm being tempted to sin, is that, is that not the devil tempting me? It could be. Or it could be the flesh. Another one of our enemies that we must battle against. And while the Bible says the way we fight Satan is to flee from him and draw near to God, when it comes to the flesh, we are commanded to put it to death. This means we don't cover over our sin. We don't conceal our sin or make excuses for our sin. Nor to violently seek to put it to death. We're to be be aggressive, not passive. And there are many passages we could turn to for this. Think of, if you're the note-taking type, think of Romans 13, 14, where Paul instructs us, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. That is, we ought not to set ourselves up to give way to sin and temptation. Jesus talks about this, does he not in Matthew 5:29, where we're to take aggressive measures in putting to death the deeds of the flesh? I think it's important to, to ask, is there any area in your life where you might be making provision for the flesh? That is, is there any sinful attitude or action you're cultivating? rather than killing. So for the devil, we resist him as we draw near to God. For the flesh, we're to put it to death. We're not to conceal it. We're not to flirt with it. We're to have nothing to do with it. Then the third thing is the world. And what does Paul instruct us in that regard in Romans 12 too? In fact, let's, let's say this first together. Ready? Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And by the world, the biblical authors don't mean like the physical earth or the people living on the planet. Rather, the world refers to this present evil age, that is the system of thinking and living that it stands in opposition to God. And friend, this verse again testifies to the importance of taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. We need to be speaking the truth of God's word daily into our hearts so as to be transformed by the renewing of our minds with Scripture. You see, faith, as followers of God's King, we don't engage and fight this battle with Saul's armor, do we? No, we put on the full armor of God. We use the means that God has instructed us. And then finally, I think with the mention of these four men who killed the giants, I think this passage is a helpful reminder that we ought to honor and emulate those who fight well. We see that with the four men listed. Just by way of application, think for a moment about this church body. Who are some Christians in this church you see fighting the good fight of faith? Well, who are you who are some Christians you see growing in faithfulness and devotion to the Lord? Christians consider their ways and emulate them as they emulate Christ. David's men fought to save God's anointed king. We fight our spiritual enemies because God's king has saved us. Amen? And as servants of God's king, if we want to wage war well, we ought to expect the warfare. We need to take inventory and evaluate their tactics and emulate those who are fighting alongside us and are doing well. But Christian, I want to leave you with this encouragement. Though this present evil age is marked by spiritual warfare, it won't always be that way. For our King will come again soon. Amen? And He has promised a new heavens and a new earth for all who belong to Him by faith. A new heavens and a new earth that is free from sin and all our foes. Amen? What hope! But till then... Let us not confuse this time as a cruise ship, but as a battleship. And let us deepen our trust and commitment to the God of the resurrection. Amen? Let's pray.